Thank you, Bob. Good morning, everyone. What a great song selection to have just before we come to Judges chapter 8, because uh, one of the things, the pattern that we'll see as we continue our examination of the life of um, Gideon this morning is that his faith plateaus. He gets to a certain point of trust and walking with the Lord and then he stops and in fact goes down. And the song that we've just been singing invites us to a deeper walk with God, to enlarge the boundaries of our faith, to allow God to take us deeper than we've ever been before. We'll see that as we come to uh, this passage today. Let's take a moment to pray and acknowledge God's presence with us and the significance of allowing Him to speak in this time. God, we do thank You that You are here. We have had the privilege and blessing of being able to worship You through song. As we come to Your Word today, we pray that You will help us to be wise and diligent in the manner that we uh, unpack it and then courageous in the manner in which we apply it. Lord, you long to speak to your people. We trust that you will and you might do that in ways that will surprise us, delight us, disturb us. But Lord, we invite you to be God and to act according to your will and purpose now and pray this according to the strong name of Jesus. Amen. I was reflecting this week on a previous, um, previous ministry experience we had where the church that I was serving was located really conveniently in the central business district of town. It had been built 160 years ago and it was really good at uh, lunchtime if I was needing a break or needing some food or if I was preparing a sermon like I have this week and you get stuck just to go for a walk, uh, to go for a walk down through the shops to see some people, talk to people, window shop, whatever... Uh, and then loop around and go back again and get back to work. One of the stores that I used to wander past, typically, as we went down, was the newsagent where my eldest daughter, Natasha, had her first job. She was uh, one of those folks who served at the counter, and while she was going through university, was blessed to have fairly regular work. And every now and again, I'd call in, and I'm not sure that Natasha was always delighted by that, because I would walk in and uh, have a bit of a cruise around and if she was working with one of the other young girls that typically worked at the newsagent, I'd go and ask for stuff like, um, do you have any gluten-free paper? <laughs> or, um, could, I find, could you find me some black highlighters? Has anyone ever used a black highlighter? Or my all-time favourite. I'd wander up and down, looking at the stationery, and backwards and forwards, and then I'd go and say, look, I'm looking for the invisible ink, but I can't find it anywhere. <laughs> and poor Tasha just kind of shake her head, and, and you know what they do, they say, Dad. <laughs> One day as I was going past, though, I didn't actually go into the newsagent, I went past, and on the window it had a poster that you will no doubt be familiar with, Tuesday night, $30 million super draw. And for a moment I got to thinking, $30 million, what could you do with $30 million? And I started to speculate, $30 million, if I went in and I won that, and surely that would be the Lord's will, um, <laughs> I, could, I could go to the bank, which was just around the corner, and I could, with one payment, pay off the house. There was about 168 still to go. I could do it with one and I could upgrade to a new house 
a new house that didn't have trouble with the septic system that I was forever having to fix or electricity that kept falling out, all that sort of stuff, I could, I could have bigger and better. And the two old cars that I had, I could retire them both. And so I started speculating as I was walking along the street. What would I buy if I had $30 million? Wouldn't it be fantastic? How I could bless my children. I could set them up for life. I could buy them a house each. I could give them a nest egg. I could, uh, as the church at the time was considering doing a building program, we could just do it. Instead of having to go through the planning and the committees and, and the arguments over the colour and the shape and the design and... And then I had a revelation, I could just resign <laughs> and I could live in retirement and, uh, and have none of those worries anymore. And so I was feeling pretty good for a moment there, quite honestly, I thought I might just go back and, uh, and pop some money. I, I didn't want to do it because Natasha was probably working there. Uh, but then I started to think about it and I thought to myself, what's wrong with the house I've got? It's kind of nice, it's a bit, you know, it has a few shabby edges but it's, it's okay and the car's good grief. Really by comparison to most people who live in our world today, I've got two cars, that puts me in the top 5% in the world of people who are blessed. And if I had just poured money into my children, it would never teach them to be empathetic for people who didn't have anything and it wouldn't teach them about being disciplined. And if I uh, just did the building program at the church, the church would never learn anything about trusting God and struggling and wrestling in prayer. And quite honestly, if I'd retired, at that age I would have been bored out of my tree. And genuinely, in that moment, I realised that, uh, you know, I would be at some spiritual risk because I wouldn't need to trust in God. I would have this money that I could just throw at everything and that would be fantastic. Uh, but no, it wouldn't actually. And so I concluded that winning a $30 million super draw could actually be the worst thing that could happen to me, not the best thing. And it captures something that D.L. Moody said years ago, we're going to throw this up on the screen for you to have a look at, something to reflect on. He said, the thing that we should fear most in life is not failure, but success in the things that don't matter. Let's think about that for a moment. I had actually started off with a quote that was this, the thing that we should fear most in life is not failure but success. Because it strikes me that sometimes when uh, someone becomes successful, what happens is they become very focused on themselves. And we see that a little bit with the story of Gideon and we'll come to that this morning in just a moment. The thing that we should fear most in life is not failure. See, failure can be recovered from. Failure is actually an opportunity to say, okay, let me learn something. Failure is a place where God's grace can be expressed to us. Failure is an opportunity for us to repent. Failure is an opportunity for us to forgive or be forgiven. But success, very, very dangerous. That could be why it is that God doesn't bless lots of us with lots of resources. And certainly in the life of our church, you know, we're a big operation here. We've been very blessed by God. We need to be really careful that we don't allow that to become distracting to us and lose our focus and trust in God. The thing we should fear most in life is not failure but success in the things that don't matter. How does this impact our study from the book of Judges? Well, as we come to Judges chapter 8 today, you will see uh, a third conflict that um, Gideon experiences. We're going to read this passage 
To give you a little bit of context, back in chapter 6, Gideon had conflict with uh, the worshippers of Baal. In chapter 7, we looked at last week, Gideon uh, had conflict with the Midianites. As we come to chapter 8, we'll see that Gideon now has conflict with his own people. And what you'll notice is, as we follow this pattern of Gideon's life, he almost does a complete circle from being an idol worshipper back to being an idol worshipper. His faith, in many respects, stalls rather sadly. Uh, We're going to read from uh, chapter 8 in just a tick. Just let me give you a little bit of context, which will be helpful as we come to the passage that's on the screen there. As Gideon went into battle against the Midianites... Uh, He called on uh, people from Naphtali, Asher and Manasseh, they were the tribes up in the north, if you can imagine the the image of Israel. The tribes from the north, Gideon sent messengers throughout the hill country of Ephraim saying, come down against the Midianites, seize the waters of the Jordan. So he got the Ephraimites to come across from where they were, I'll show you a map in a moment, to cut the retreating Midianites off. And the Ephraimites were very successful in doing that. Chapter 8, verse 1. Let's read together. Now, uh, before I actually do read, I just want to make mention of the fact this is quite a chunk of Scripture, about 35 verses. Um, There has, I know, as a young person, I thought, oh man, alive, when the pastor was reading the Bible, it seemed to go on forever and ever. But there's much blessing in the public reading of God's Word. So, think of the story, immerse yourself in the imagery, imagine what's going on here keep your eyes and ears attuned to uh, to some of those strange things that are happening and ask God what is he saying through this passage chapter 8 verse 1 now the Ephraimites asked Gideon why have you treated us like this why didn't you call us when we went to fight Midian and they criticized him sharply but he answered them What have I accomplished compared to you? Aren't the gleanings of Ephraim's grapes better than the full grape harvest of Abiezer? God gave Oreb and Zeb, the Midianite leaders, into your hands. What was I able to do compared to you? At this, their resentment against him subsided. Gideon and his 300 men, exhausted yet keeping up pursuit, came to the Jordan and crossed it. He said to the men of Succoth, Give my troops some bread, they are worn out. And I am still pursuing Zeba and Zalmanna, the kings of Midian. But the officials of Succoth said, Do you already have the hands of Zeba and Zalmanna in your possession? Why should we give bread to your troops? Then Gideon replied, Just for that, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmanna into my hand, I will tear your flesh with desert thorns and briars. From there he went up to Peniel and made the same request of them but they answered as the men of Succoth had so he said to the men of Peniel when I return in triumph I will tear down this tower now Zebra and Zalmanna were in Karkor with a force of about 15,000 men all that were left of the armies of the eastern peoples 120,000 swordsmen had fallen Gideon went by the route of the nomads east of Noba and Jogbaha and fell upon the unsuspecting army Zeba and Zalmanna, the two kings of Midian, fled, but he pursued them and captured them, routing their entire army. Gideon, son of Joash, then returned from the battle of the pass of Heres. He caught a young man of Succoth and questioned him, and the young man wrote down for him the names of the 77 officials of Succoth, the elders of the town. 
Then Gideon came and said to the men of Succoth, Here are Zeba and Zalmunna, about whom you taunted me by saying, Do you already have the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna in your possession? Why should we give bread to your exhausted men? Then he took the elders of town and taught the men of Succoth a lesson by punishing them with desert thorns and briars. He also pulled down the tower of Peniel and killed the men of the town. Then he asked Zebra and Zelmana, what kind of men did you kill at Tabor? Men like you, they answered, each one with the bearing of a prince. Gideon replied, those were my brothers, the sons of my own mother. As surely as the Lord lives, if you had spared their lives, I would not kill you. Turning to Jetha, his older son, he said, kill them. But Jetha did not draw his sword because he was only a boy and was afraid. Zeba and Zalmunna said, Come, do it yourself. As is the man, so is his strength. So Gideon stepped forward and killed them and took the ornaments off their camels' necks. The Israelites said to Gideon, Rule over us, you, your son and your grandson, because you have saved us out of the hand of Midian. But Gideon said to them, Gideon told them, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And he said, I do have one request, that each of you give me an earring from your share of the plunder. It was the custom of the Ishmaelites to wear gold earrings. They answered, we'll be glad to give them. So they spread out a garment and each man threw a ring from his plunder onto it. The weight of the gold rings he asked for came to 1,700 shekels, not counting the ornaments, the pendants, the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian or the chains that were on their camels' necks. Gideon made the gold into an ephod, which he placed in Ophrah, his town. All Israel prostituted themselves by worshipping it there and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. Thus Midian was subdued before the Israelites and did not raise its head again during Gideon's lifetime. The land enjoyed peace for 40 years. Jeroboam, that's Gideon, son of Joash, went back home to live. He had 70 sons of his own, for he had many wives. His concubine who lived in Shechem also bore him a son who he named Abimelech. Gideon, son of Joash, died at a good old age and was buried in the tomb of his father Joash in Ophrah of the Aborazites. No sooner had Gideon died than the Israelites again prostituted themselves to the Baals. They set up Baal Bereth as their god and did not remember the Lord their God who rescued them from the hands of all their enemies on every side. They also failed to show kindness to the family of Jeroboam, that is Gideon, for all the good things he had done to them. What a sad story. Such potential and what a sad end. It's actually a reminder to us that finishing well is not easy, is it? It's probably helpful for us uh, to understand a little bit of um, the geography here and we're going to throw up another slide here this time, uh, a picture, an image of a map just to give you some idea of uh, where these events transpired just so that we can get a, an image in our minds. The Midianites came from down this southeast area, this desert area, had invaded into Israel, crossed the Jordan River and were concentrating there activities up through this Jezreel Valley area up near the Sea of Galilee, a rich fertile area, the area that was occupied by the northern tribes. And so when Gideon went up against the Midianites it made sense for him to uh, call out to the northern tribes and we'll just have a look at um, a slide here to give you some idea of where they were. Tribes like the tribe of Manasseh, Asher and Naphtali who were in that area. It made sense obviously from a military point of view to call upon those soldiers to, 
take on the Midianites. Ephraim down here was also very strategically placed to cut off the retreat of the Midianites, hence uh, Gideon's request there in chapter 7, uh, let me see, verse 23, around that kind of area, uh, to come and cut off the retreating um, Ephraimites as they were trying to get back across the Jordan so that they couldn't flee um, due south. And we're told, as the scripture um, summarises for us, that the Ephraimites are very successful at doing this. But it becomes obvious from chapter 8 that we've just read that the Ephraimites were something of a prima donna kind of a tribe, very proud of themselves. In fact, they were a very proud people. And they'd got their noses out of joint about the fact that Gideon hadn't called upon them in the first place. In fact, their question is kind of like, uh, why didn't you come, uh, why didn't you call us when you first went up to fight the Midianites? You know, we would have given them a good hiding. We know how to fight, we're Ephraimites. I'm actually reminded of a conversation that I had with a guy who came from the coast in PNG. Just out of curiosity, uh, Highlands people in Papua New Guinea were very warlike. They were very uh, aggressive. They weren't particularly big in stature. In fact, I can remember going out into a village one day and there's a, a lady who saw me and said, oh, the Australians, we love the Australians. And she came and gave me a hug. And she only came up to here, which made hugging me very, very awkward. <laughs> so I kind of had nothing to hold on to. <laughs> but the Highlanders would get around with bush knives, machetes, and you know they were forever having fights and busting up stuff. And, and the coastal people were dead scared of them. And I said to a coastal guy one day, why is it uh, that you coastal people are not like this? Why don't you fight like the Highlanders? His name was Jephthah. And Jephthah said to me with a wry smile on his face, he said, Dave, it's too hot to fight <laughs> around the coast. It's just too hot. We, we don't use machetes. We use magic. We use sorcery. But then he actually went on to say something really interesting. He said, you know what I reckon it is? It's because these Highland people have lived in splendid isolation down in their valleys, you know, in the different valleys. There's hundreds and hundreds of them. They've never been oppressed by anyone else. They've never known what it's like to be under the oppression of an outside force. We coastal people, by contrast, we remember even in living history the Japanese who came and who oppressed us. And that kind of thing teaches you some humility, doesn't it? And the Highland people, they'd never lived under oppression. They'd always just been able to do their own thing and so they thought there was nothing that they couldn't take on, which is a little bit like what's going on here for Ephraim. The tribe of Ephraim thought they were something else. And they had their noses out of joint about the fact that Gideon hadn't called on them. And so that may be uh, what's going on. They were probably, because of their location uh, amongst all of the tribes, the least affected by Midian. They had not been oppressed in the same way that the northern tribes had been. And so they thought that Gideon had snubbed them. They had seen the success of tribes that they considered inferior to them. And let me just say to you, one of the surest tests of character that I know is this. It's how a person responds when they see the success of somebody else. Back in the Bible college days, we had a lecturer one day who brought in the wife of a pastor who was working in a big team. And the question was asked, what is the hardest thing you've experienced in ministry? That's a very interesting question. Is what's, the, what's the most difficult thing for you as a wife? What's the hardest thing? 
And she, her answer was rather fascinating and I've never forgotten it. She said, you know, the hardest thing for me, the, the wife of a husband in ministry, is to see others do things really well and succeed and say, I am pleased. It's interesting, isn't it? It's hard sometimes to be humble enough to acknowledge the achievements of others. And here we have a tribe of Israel, the Ephraimites, who were quite proud, in a sense, of their own capacity uh, with their noses out of joint, uh, criticising Gideon from that tribe they considered inferior. And it's difficult, I imagine it must have been very difficult for Gideon and quite painful for him to hear that too because he was only acting in accordance with what God had instructed him to do. And it's... it's easy to say well you know Gideon should have just let it roll past him but it's hard isn't it it's hard hearing criticism and it's even harder when that criticism comes from someone close to us it's easy if you know someone of little consequence to us criticizes that we can just let that go but if it's someone who's intimate with us someone who lives in the same house as us someone in the same church as us who criticizes us or whatever it might be that's difficult king david understood this david wrote about this if you have a look at um, psalm 55 for instance david wrote these words 12 verses 12 to 14 he said if an enemy were insulting me i could endure it if a foe were raising against me, I could hide from him. But it is you, a man like myself, my companion, my close friend, with whom I once enjoyed sweet, sweet fellowship as we, walked with the throne, uh, as we walked together to the house of God. You see, David in that psalm is lamenting the fact you know, enemies can do what they like, but it's friends that hurt the most. And Gideon experienced that in uh, his relationship with his tribe of Ephraim. The most difficult criticism that we have to face is that which comes from those we think are our allies, those who are our friends, those who we are close to, the ones who are perhaps more intimately aware of the context than anyone else, those who probably should know what's going on. I've always said in uh, terms of criticism, no matter how harsh it is, no matter where it comes from, uh, it not, uh, it's not wise to dismiss it out of hand. There's always some truth that can or should be learnt. But it's not easy, is it? It's not easy when it comes from someone close by. It ought to give us pause to uh, consider too before we push the send button when we're emailing or before we do something online just to think, what is going to be the result of this? Ephraim didn't do that. They just came barging on in and, uh, and laid their complaint out before Gideon. Why have you treated us like this? Why didn't you call us to fight when you went to fight the Midianites? They would have done it in their own strength. Was God interested in that? Not at all. And Gideon's response in verses 2 to 3 appear to be seasoned with much wisdom and grace, but uh, on the surface at least it looks like Gideon's holding the moral ground. But I can't help but wonder whether Gideon was just being tactful because he recognized that this tribe of Ephraim he didn't want to upset him and so he was very careful in how he responded there's some wisdom in how he responded no matter what his motivation was but we do see uh, some degeneration if you like a downward trend in Gideon's leadership and the clue was found in the next part of the story because as Gideon and his troops continued in their hot pursuit of the Midianites 
they crossed over the Jordan and they went to uh, these two cities that are described. This is another little map, just to give us an idea. Uh, Gideon's pursuit there in red, the Ephraimites' intervention there in green, and you can see that the Midianites fled through this region where there are two cities that are described here for us, Succoth and Peniel. And here again, um, Gideon went to ask for supplies. He was exhausted, his troops were hungry, they were uh, in the midst of a battle and the, the people in these cities said, no, we're not going to help you. Why did they do that? Well, on the one hand, we have the account of the Ephraimites who, you know, we're ready to take on anyone. We're Ephraimites. On the other hand, we have these two cities, Succoth and Peniel. Now, note where they are. They're on the other side of the Jordan River. And up to this point, they're not convinced that Gideon's going to win the battle. And if Gideon doesn't win the battle, they are very vulnerable to that word, reprisal attacks from the Midianites. They are kind of out on the edge. And if the Midianites are not fully defeated, uh, the Midianites may well come back. And so they are anxious about their position. And so, so they say to Gideon, no, we're not going to help because you haven't actually captured these leaders yet. We haven't seen the victory. Now, at this point, Gideon has a choice, doesn't he? He could say, I know it seems remarkable. I know it seems unbelievable. But trust me, God has this in hand. That's not what he says. He takes a different tack, again, indicative perhaps of the degeneration in his attitude, in his walk with the Lord. Well, if you're not going to help me, I'm going to come back and I'm going to punish you, I'll tear down your tower, I'm going to whatever it means, I'm going to expose you to the briars, to the prickles, all that kind of stuff. He makes threats against these cities, which in fact he does follow up. And as you follow the story, and we read it uh, through to the end of the chapter, we see a gradual decline in Gideon's trust and submission to God. Back in chapter 7, verse 15, Gideon heard the dream that the Midianite soldiers were having. He uh, heard the interpretation of the dream, and his response was to worship God, but that's the last time he does that. As we get to the end of the battle with the Midianites in chapter 8 verse 22 the people who have already forgotten that the victory was God's have asked Gideon asked Gideon to be king now Gideon declined saying the Lord should rule over them which is a lovely statement but then immediately while he says no to being their king he starts acting like one he says no to political leadership but he suddenly assumes responsibility for religious leadership which is interesting we'll talk about that in a second because there is something interesting going on here, I think, in Gideon's life and it's perhaps uh, something that uh, the scripture has recorded for us to be aware of. One of the observations we can make of Gideon is this, throughout his life he seemed to need constant injections of faith, didn't he? He needed God to reassure him, he needed God to remind him. Three times in chapter 6 the Lord said to Gideon, I will be with you, but still Gideon asked for a sign. When, uh, when God said to the Gideon, go up against the Midianites, Gideon said, oh, I'm not 100% convinced yet. Can you give me another sign if I chuck out this fleece? You know that story Matt dealt with a couple of weeks ago. Twice. 
and then uh, required even more after that assurance by going down secretly to hear the conversation in the tents of Midian. And then we come to chapter 8 where Gideon, uh, this is from verse 22, uh, creates an ephod. Behaviour that's actually consistent with uh, Gideon's behaviour earlier on. Now, just as a word to the wise, an ephod was, uh, a, a, well, it was practically speaking, a kind of an apron thing that God gave to the Israelites as a means by which they might hear from him, understand his will. It was to be worn by the high priest and no one else. But Gideon here has created, out of the spoils of war, this ephod, which I think, just thinking about it, is entirely consistent with the way he has behaved because he's wanted constantly to know, how do I know this is of God? How do I know this is of God? How do I know this is of God? His faith has needed buttressing all the time. And now he's actually taking control of that. If I make an ephod, then I'll be able to control it. I'll be able to manage it. It'll be mine to own, if you like. Do you understand what I'm saying? Gideon's needed these supernatural interventions by God all the way through and now he's actually trying to control that so that he's got it in his hands. And the risk for Gideon is that his faith is just kind of plateauing like this. It's not actually allowing God to be God. Gideon's taking control of, uh, of how his faith, how his relationship with God is to be understood and prosecuted. It's weak faith, really, because mature faith, in contrast to the faith of Gideon, actually allows God to be God and God to mediate the relationship in the ways that God wants to. You see, God can reveal himself to us in all sorts of ways. But as soon as we say, this is the way you've got to do it, God, I narrow my vision of God. As soon as I argue the case that, you know, this is, this is how God's going to talk to me and this is the only way I'm going to allow God to talk to me, we restrict God. We take away the capacity to, for God to speak to us in other ways and there are all sorts of ways. Mature faith actually says, God, you be God and guide me, grow me, let me experience that, challenge me, stretch me. Let me experience you in the way that you want me to experience you rather than me try and control my relationship with you. Mature faith actually ought to move us away from demanding signs or putting out fleeces or creating our own ephods and learning to hear not the voice outside of us, not to rely on those kind of amazing experiences that God gives us from time to time but the still small voice of the Holy Spirit inside us to be quiet enough to hear that, to drill down deep enough into God's love to actually hear that. I don't know if I've ever told you the story of a friend of mine, um, Gareth, I've shared this story with a couple of people recently so it's at the forefront of my mind. He was a relatively um, young but quite a mature Christian. He said to me one day, you know David, when I first became a Christian it was as if God was right here. All I had to do was reach out, I could follow, I knew exactly what God wanted me to do. Everything was clear, nothing was ambiguous but as I have grown in my faith it seems like God's got further and further away from me. At least that's what it seemed like but actually he realised what was happening was God was leading him in faith to trust him and to lean into God 
and to press harder at learning and discerning and not just trust on the surface stuff, which was lovely, but to walk by faith, not by sight. That's the difference between Gideon's faith, this faith that requires signs and mature faith. And I think as I reflect on this, we Christians, and I count myself in this too, fall into one of two extremes. Some of us, uh, in some senses, like Gideon, we get to a point in our faith and say, this is far enough, I'm happy with where I'm at. I'm comfortable in the way that I'm expressing my faith. That's why that song that we sang just a few moments ago is, is an uncomfortable song. Because if you sing it with any genuine kind of sense or, or connection, you know, take me deeper, that's an invitation for God to take you deeper. But oftentimes we just say, oh no, this is far enough, God. Don't, I, I'm quite happy, I'm happy with this church, I'm happy with the relationships I have, happy with life, happy with this stuff. I'm comfortable in that place. And that's a certain way of becoming cemented in our weaknesses and inadequacies and what we see in Gideon's life is if we sit in that place for too long we don't actually stay flat, we go down. We don't deepen our walk with the Lord, our walk with the Lord becomes weaker. And other people, a second um, challenge that some people um, face is this, Um, they'll say, I can't change, I've tried often and I'll never be any different, it's too hard, too difficult... And the result's the same. We become cemented in our weakness and and inadequacy and lose our vitality. But the encouragement to us today in 2022 is this. Chapter 8 in Judges is not the last chapter in the Bible. Nor is the Old Testament the last section of the Bible. The First Testament, the Second Testament, the Old Testament, the New Testament. Because in the New Testament we have so much more than what Gideon had. We know the New Testament teaches us we have the blood of Christ that cleanses us, the scriptures that we have written down for us to guide us, the presence of the Holy Spirit in us to direct us, to empower us, to help us, to be our companion, our guide, our direction. We have Jesus who rescues us from self-honouring responses like that of Gideon. As soon as, uh, as we start behaving like Gideon, God will challenge us when those self-honouring responses to success tend to bring us to a point where we become proud in our own uh, ability. God gives us the power to be free from the need of respect or authority, to be true servants and not be crushed because of the lack of recognition or power. And unlike Gideon's ephod, which became a snare for Gideon and his family and in fact for all of Israel, We have Christ who is the only one, the right one, the most holy one, the perfect one who is to be worshipped and we do that together today. Let's pray as we conclude this section of our study of the book of Judges. Lord, again, we thank you that um, you've given us your word. There are examples that you've given to follow, examples that have been given for us not to follow and truly... Uh, while we acknowledge that you've done some amazing things through Gideon, you exercised your power through his weakness, we see in his life an example of a man who allowed success to distract him from worship, who became enamoured by the power that he had, 
who perhaps struggled in that space. Lord, we don't know all of the context. We don't understand everything there is going on in his life. And so perhaps it's unfair to make too many assumptions. But his finish was not spectacular. He married many wives. He had many children in the same manner that an eastern king would do, which in many respects is the opposite of what you desire for him. God, grant us the courage too not to pigeonhole you in the way that you want to relate to us, not to put boundaries around how you will speak, not to hold on to one particular form of revelation or particular manner in which you reveal yourself to us and believe that is the most significant or the only way that you will do that, but to be open to how your spirit might speak to us in whatever way it is that you choose to speak. You speak to us through your word, through that voice in our hearts, through other people, through our circumstances. There's a myriad of ways, God, that you will speak. And Lord, our prayer is that you will take us deeper, that you will uh, encourage us, you will challenge us to embrace a faith that honours you in every respect. Lord God, we give you thanks for your presence and for your word. Amen. As always, after our service today, we have the opportunity to have fellowship together. We're going to sing a song in a moment, but let me encourage you too. There's folks here at the front, Matt or myself or others, uh, elders and prayer team who are available for prayer. If there's anything that you would like prayer for, whether it's something that might have come up today, something that you want to pray for in response to the word that we've shared today, other things that are going on in life, let me encourage you to do that as an indication of our dependence on God and not on trust in ourselves. Bob, thank you for concluding with the song.